Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Mitten Politics. I'm your host, Ian Duncanson, and I'm super excited to talk about gerrymandering in this episode. I will be talking with attorney Dan Ferency, who um, has self-identified himself as sort of a political science nerd, especially on this topic. So super excited to get some insight from him. Um, as a, kind of a supplement to this, I would really love if anyone listening to this, look up your legislative district um, for your congressional district. Um, and so you can actually just Google your, uh, your representative in the House and look for their congressional district. And then either screenshot that or take a picture with your phone and email that to mittenpolitics at gmail.com. I want to highlight some of these districts, and I'll leave your name out of it, but I want to highlight some of these districts on my social media for this, this podcast. And I think sometimes it's hard to imagine exactly what that gerrymandered district looks like until you look at your own and see what does that actually look like. So again, take a screenshot or a photo with your phone of that legislative or that congressional district that you live in and just email that to mittenpolitics at gmail.com. I appreciate any help and support on that. Also, I can't begin this episode without at the very least acknowledging that we finally have a new president and a new Senate, and I feel like I can finally take a breath before diving into the really hard work that's that's going to continue. Um, you know, we, we have... Uh, many of us have the person elected that we want, but we need to continue to fight for the changes that really matter and continue to keep the pressure on. So, but nevertheless, I'm very excited that we finally have a new occupant in the White House. With that, I will leave it there and dive into the episode. All right, today I'm here with Dan Ferency. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about gerrymandering. Pleasure to be here. Here's what a time to talk about some of the nuts and bolts of democracy just a few days before uh, what we hope will be the peaceful transition of power. Uh, it's, <laughs> Absolutely. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that that uh, the discussions have gone from political parties to does democracy still have relevancy, and that's the <laughs> the argument we're having. So yeah, maybe we'll maybe we'll be talking about it more as a historical artifact than something that's uh, that's uh, that's living and breathing. But I hope that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, in terms of gerrymandering, it's a term I'm sure a lot of people have heard. It's come kind of out into the ether of discussion a lot more. Um, and, and sometimes it's hard for me to tell if that's actually because like social media is circulating those topics or if it's just because I'm someone who's very interested in political topics and reading articles and listening to podcasts. But um, just to kind of clarify, let's talk a little bit about what gerrymandering is. Um, and then we'll kind of go through some of the, the implications that it has and, and work through that. Um, but one of the best ways I've heard, heard it described is that, you know, normally voters go to the polls on election day and they choose their politicians. However, with gerrymandering, it's more of a process of the politicians who've already been elected deciding who their voters are. So kind of reverse engineering the voting system and having those in power, um, choosing who's going to vote for them. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great way to think about it. Um, and certainly a catchy slogan whenever a state, including our state of Michigan, is uh, attempting a ballot initiative to, to change the way that the districts are drawn. But obviously, you know, we're, we're talking about gerrymandering, we're talking about the drawing of, of districts um, in a way that benefits those in power. Um, you know, there, there are two types of gerrymandering. Uh, there's cracking and packing, and I can explain those a little bit if you'd like. But Yeah, that'd be great. In general, um, packing is when those drawing the district lines um, place a bunch of, uh, draw the lines in a way that put the, the opponent in that district in large numbers. So, so in a system like ours, where it's a first past the poll, meaning you know all you need is a simple majority, anything above that majority 
really is, is a wasted vote, if you think about it, right? You don't need those votes um, to, to win. You just need a feather on the scale, as we like to, to say, to, to claim victory. And, and so, you know, packing is, let me put as many folks of the opposing party so that we're wasting those votes in the district we already know we're going to lose. Um, uh, instead of spreading them, spreading them out in, in other districts, which would make the race a lot more competitive. Um, so that's, that's one of the two major. The other is cracking, which is taking a large um, constituency and spreading that constituency, which may be located in a in a in a in a close lo location or a close proximity across a number of different districts, so you sort of lessen the power of of that group. Um, and and folks can accomplish, you know, a strategic advantage using either. I think you know when we're, when we're talking about how we draw lines, um, naturally Democrats are a bit at, are sort of at a natural disadvantage when it comes to to redistricting, in part because their, their constituency generally is more clustered in, in metropolitan areas. So it makes, sure. it, it makes district drawing, you know, have a sort of a natural um, disadvantage for Democrats, I think. But um, those, those are the two, the two major uh, forms of gerrymandering. Um, you know, not a practice sort of everyone dislikes. It's always given a, a, a negative connotation, uh, but still, you know, many hundreds of years later manages to, uh, to carry on. To persist. Yeah, well, and you you mentioned that it tends to uh, put Democrats as, at a disadvantage because of kind of how the populations cluster in some of those big areas. Um, but I mean, gerrymandering in, tr in, in its fullest is actually a somewhat nonpartisan issue because, you know, there are, you can find instances of Democrats in power that gerrymandered places and Republicans in power that have gerrymandered places. It's definitely become much more extreme, especially in 2010 was when it really um, seemed to go off the far, uh, the far right to use, <laughs> to use the term. Um, and there were, you know, especially with the development of computers, like if you look back at gerrymandering, um, you know, 100 years ago, they kind of had to, it was still done, but it was done based on kind of guesses and things like that. They didn't have computers that could break it down to a T and cut out, you know, little sections of neighborhoods to throw them into one district. And, um, and so it's, it's gotten so much more methodical and precise for those who are doing it today than it ever has been able to be in the past. I think that's right, yeah. Uh, and, and that's not to say that that only Republicans gerrymander, certainly it's been used by both parties since the beginning of our country. Um, and and it, it has become, I think, more of a hot button news in, in that it's more effective. You're, you're right that uh, technology has certainly, you know, uh, provided an ability for the the line drawing to be more effective to find where where voters are uh, with more precision. Um, you're you're 100 right on that. Yeah, and importantly, um, you know, as we're talking about this, if people are visualizing this, so you have a district. It's not just um, you draw a square on a map and then decide how big or wide that square is, and there's a district. It's actually, you know, it's based on population. So you try to get. Uh, equal populations in, or roughly equal populations in each district that you're breaking down. And so if I add a whole group of people in one area, I have to subtract somewhere else to keep the population in a similar way. So like when you talk about packing, it's saying, okay, well, I'm going to take this district and group as many of the people as I can into this one district that will fit this one party, even if that means I have to snake up, you know, over and across. Um, I think of like Alyssa Slotkin's district in Michigan um, that she managed to beat out Mike Bishop in a district that was literally drawn for him. And that district goes from Rochester where my dad lives, clear across to Lansing such that when I go out to East Lansing, I am driving along the highway looking at campaign signs for someone that is also representing my dad's district. And it's just kind of crazy when you really look at, you know, you hear about gerrymandering, but when you actually look at a district um, and see what that, what that looks like, it's pretty shocking. 
Yeah, and, and as another example, I live in Michigan's 14th congressional district, which was uh, redrawn after the 20, 2010 census. And if you look at that, I mean, it's hard to find a clear example of a gerrymandered packed district, right? It starts off the east side of Detroit through the Gross Points up to essentially eight mile, and then it goes west and a very narrow strip, about a half mile long strip, the Southern Oakland County, you know, straight out to the Southfield area, and then from Southfield directly north, another narrow strip into Pontiac. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yes, the, I think the, the packed districts are more often the ones you see these kind of salamander, uh, styled uh, districts that it's it's clear just on the face of of what the district looks like geographically what was intended. Yeah, and um, I've actually I've been reading some books and articles and things that have talked about how even in between uh, census because obviously you know after the census all the legislative districts get redrawn, but even in between that time period that um, there are those that in, are in power that can still make minor tweaks. So I've heard stories about like uh, political candidates that were recruited to run in a specific district and they went to go file to run in that district and were denied because they were told you don't live in that district. Even though they had been in that district for multiple of the previous elections, but in the interim, the district had been adjusted and literally moved like across the street and lumped that house into another district so they could no longer be a candidate in that, you know, to challenge whoever the incumbent was. I believe I read about that specific example happening in Georgia uh, with someone that Stacey Abrams was many years ago trying to help uh, run for a legislative seat in the, in the state. Yeah, and I think that highlights the central problem of gerrymandering, right? I mean, uh, it's a winner-take-all system. The folks in power are the ones who are drawing the districts. And, and you know, under the Constitution and, and federal law, the drawing of the districts is, a, is up to the state legislature. So if you have a state legislature that's controlled by one party, uh, without further restriction on the timing, the nature of the drawing, the actual physical drawing of the lines, you, you get um, you, you get districts and, and changes to districts that tend to tend to benefit the party that's in power, which is not really how it should be. It's not how, how folks think it should be. And, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit later about some changes to that process as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just the last kind of thing I'll summarize here before we move on to kind of talk about some of these other elements of it is that when you look at the, the, the direct uh, result of gerrymandering, so, you know, we talked about packing these districts and cracking other districts, um, is that you, that's where you can end up in, like in a state like Michigan, where um, the number of votes for the Democratic candidates for legislature and the state Senate um, was ov well over 50% was something like 56% or something like that, maybe more, I wanna say from this last election, um, in, just in 2020. And yet on, on the Republican side, they have maybe uh, 44 or 45%. And so even though they're getting, you know, like almost a 10% difference in spread of the vote, Republicans still have a majority in both the state house and the state legislature. And obviously the state, the state, um, I'm sorry, state Senate and state legislature and the state Senate, we didn't have the election here in 2020. That was a uh, 2018. Um, but the same thing kind of played out where, um, you know, there was a significant number more votes for the democratic candidates. And yet the Republicans hold a significant majority still in both of the, the houses of the state houses of Congress. And in theory, we want government to be responsive to the will of the people. And you have a system that is regularly resulting in minority rule. It's a problem for democracy. And I think, you know, all of our institutions are, are recognizing, uh, have recognized that as an issue. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that perfectly segues into the next point I was, um, I wanted to just touch on a little bit is, you know, that this results into, in situations where depending on the district, the politicians don't really have to listen to what their constituents want because they have such overwhelming support in the district that they're in that they know it's not going to be competitive for them. So they kind of can, can do what they want and don't have to listen to their constituents. Um, 
Yeah, I think I think that's right. Before we talk about that, let's. I just want to mention briefly the interesting uh, origins of the word gerrymandering. Uh, and um, so, oh yeah, comes from famous politician who's actually Madison's vice president, uh, Gary El Elbridge Gary. Um, and so his name is pronounced Gary, not Jerry. I'm not sure how it became gerrymandering instead of gerrymandering. I think there's a Parks and Rec. Uh, joke in here somewhere, <laughs> Gary or Jerry. Gary. Somebody, somebody said it the wrong way, you know, early on and it just stuck. Um, and, and he was uh, from Massachusetts. In fact, I think was the governor of Massachusetts for some time before. Yeah, in the early 1800s. Yeah. Interesting etymology. I was, as a former English major, I love talking about the origins of word and gerrymandering certainly is an unusual one. But you, you were talking about um, how gerrymandering uh, can can affect, I think, uh, turnout or enthusiasm in, in particular races, or you know whether uh, you know it generally makes them less competitive. In some ways, it's counterintuitive, right? If if you have a packed district, so the lines have been drawn against a party, an individual candidate might actually like that in their district, right? If they if they know that there's an easy win. You know, as it uh, on a sort of selfish level, you know, it might help them personally, but it, it's typically not great for the the party at large. Uh, if, if you live in a district, um, you know, especially like mine, for example, the the House 14th district, you know, uh, it, it's sort of a foregone conclusion, right? And, and what the uh, side effect of that is, it it decreases enthusiasm, it decreases turnout, right? you know, and this, this is a issue that, that is raised a lot in presidential politics. Oh, you know, we have swing states, we're driving up enthusiasm in that state because we know it's competitive. You know, another way and sort of sneaky way in which gerrymandering is uh, undemocratic is, is that it, it turns, it, it lowers participation in a place that otherwise could be uh, ripe for, you know, uh, honest debate, um, exchange of ideas, and instead, you know, it puts folks in races that are almost a foregone conclusion, right? There's some, some, I know they're going to be redrawn this year, and I'm sure we'll talk about that as well, but, you know, there, there, there's just some, some districts are a foregone conclusion before the election's even held, and everybody knows it. Yeah, well, and once someone is able to get elected, the incumbency power is real. And so once someone gets in, even if, you know, someone wanted to challenge them in a primary, that primary challenger often has such an uphill battle, um, you know, and, and we've seen where there was kind of a, a surge in primary challenges, even on the Democratic side in 2018, where you had, you know, AOC and some of these other uh, more progressive candidates challenging Democrats who were in these safe Democratic districts. Um, and were no, no longer responsive to huge swaths of their district because they didn't have to. They didn't have to listen to, um, you know, the poor community or the community of color that was a big part of their, their representation because they knew that that district was going to vote for them as a Democrat regardless, and so they did, just didn't worry about it. And I even think, you know, before we started recording here, I had, I had mentioned, you know, kind of an unintentional gerrymander is really our states. And if you think about like the Senate and the Electoral College and how that all works, um, a, look at a state like Kentucky, where you have Mitch McConnell, who is the senator with probably the lowest approval rating of any senator in, in the Senate period. And still handily wins re-election because he's in Kentucky, because it's so heavily Republican, and because he has this power to really prevent an effective primary challenger, he's able to retain power. And granted, that's, you know, state level. States are, you know, the, the, we're not redrawing the state boundaries every <laughs> 10 years. But if you look at that as kind of a micro or a, a macro version of if you scale down to a district, um, it just, it, it really, it's really unfortunate that these, the voters in some of these districts just really don't get to get heard unless yeah, you do happen to be in a, a quote unquote competitive district. Yeah. I think, I think candidates in those districts, they're getting, you're, you're spot on that their, their challenge is to be primaried and, and, you know, and to get a challenge from someone to the left or the right of them. Right. I mean, we're becoming an increasingly polarized uh, political society, and so it, it does. It does push, you know, um, you know, ideas more to the to the polls than in the middle, right? And and it does. It doesn't necessarily, 
you know, encourage uh, consensus, encourage compromise in the way that maybe the framers intended. Uh, I agree with you about the Senate, certainly less democratic than, than the House on the federal level. One of the geniuses, uh, the, part of the genius of, of our constitution is that series of checks and balances, the compromise of, compromises that, that were made at, at its inception. So I, I agree with you there. Yeah. Um, all right. So in terms of where this affects, because, you know, Senate seats are conducted statewide. Um, and even, you know, like our federal elections, there technically are no federal elections because our federal, federally elected candidates uh, or candidate, the president still goes through the electoral college. But gerrymandering does affect um, everything from like county commission seats, uh, state legislative seats or state um, state Senate seats, um, as well as federal House seats, um, thinking about the U.S. House of Representatives. And so it, it affects multiple prongs of this. And so there's multiple steps sort of that have to be taken to address this. Um, so one example, and we're going to do probably a whole episode on the Independent Redistricting Commission in Michigan, just because mm -hmm. I think there's so many nuances to that that would be helpful for people to understand. Um, but that was an, an uh, initiative that was enacted by voters in 2018 um, that will affect this next uh, redistricting process. Now that we get, once we get the results from the 2020 census, um, the independent redistricting commission will take over in drawing um, any state level seats and above. But what I found interesting in talking to one of my county commissioners here in Oakland County is that not every county actually does their, like it, it, it's not affected by that law and not every county has independent redistricting commissions. Some do, some don't. Mm -hmm. So even at the county level, we're still going to see some potential for gerrymandering, um, despite this whole statewide initiative, which is just kind of baffling to me that there's still um, that 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 a statewide referendum could still result in local elections having that problem. And I, I kind of want to pose the question to you because I feel a little bit conflicted on this. When I was talking to um, one of the county commissioners. I said, you know, if we if we hold on a Democratic majority that we recently just won um, in, uh, you know, just at, with the passing of Brooks Patterson, and then I think 2018 election was when we finally took a one-seat majority, um, is now that Democrats have power in at the county level, Republicans have been gerrymandering for years and years and years and years. <laughs> What are your thoughts about Democrats then doing the same thing now that they're the ones holding the holding the gavel? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I think that that question is going to face Democrats in nearly every political subdivision from the lowest seat on up is that, you know, we, we've seen uh, folks use sort of naked power for their own purposes without regard to whether they think it's the right thing before. Um, and maybe we were unhappy about that. I can think of a number of issues that I was extremely unhappy that that power was exercised. And, and so now that we're, you know, now the Democrats are in the driver's seat, right? Do we want to exact some measure of revenge? Do we want to play the same game? Or do we want to institute you know, rules that we think you know, should outlast this, the flip-flop of power, right? I mean, I think that's a, that's a huge question. You know, my subjective view is that process is more important than, you know, than, than taking a little piece in the moment, right? Uh, and to the extent we can install um, really good processes uh, that uh, would be difficult to undo by someone who wants to just exercise sort of might for its own sake, um, that's that's the best result, but I understand the the other part of the argument. I mean, in, in politics is is uh, it's sparring, right? It's uh, it's adversarial at its at its nature, and, and so in some sense it's set up to be the the give or take. But I think my view is, um, you know, rather than have uh, the person in power always get the final say, right? Uh, to me, it makes sense to build in some controls, to build in some 
you know, some, some checks to make sure that we don't, the next, for the next time, we don't let the people that have power decide all the rules and, 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 and play the game in advance. But I, I think that's a, I think that's a central question for, for Democrats up and down uh, government right now. Yeah, I, I definitely feel similarly. I feel like the biggest test of a person's character is to see what they do when they have in power, when they have the power. So I think like when you look at, um, you know, our, our political landscape and how it shifted between um, really at all levels, Democratic control to Republican control in the House, in the Senate, at the presidency, and the, um, you know, at the state and local levels, is it's truly a test of how, um, how much can we trust you and what, what are the ideals that you actually stand for? And that's what we don't really get to see that fully until someone is in power. Um, I mean, that's that's something I'm really looking toward uh, now that Joe Biden has been elected and now that there's an opportunity with a slim majority in the House and, and the Senate with um, VP-elect Kamala Harris. It's fun to say that um, <laughs> with her casting the deciding vote. Um, but I now I want to see action on the, the commitments that were made. And um, I don't want to see the same corruption that's been condemned because it's a lot easier to yell about all the things that need to be changed and all the things that are wrong when you're a minority party. But then suddenly when power is handed to you, that's the, for me is the real test of what are you going to do now that you're sitting in that seat? Are yeah, you, we, are you going to abdicate that power or are you going to use it? I think we need to aspire to, to greater ideals than just let's take everything we can get right now. Right. I don't think we want to live in a system that, um, it, it, depending on the, who's in power at the moment, you could take something or everything away from the other side. I don't think that's a healthy, healthy democracy. I don't think that's health, those are healthy politics. And I agree with you. We need to, we need to aspire to commit to a fair process rather than demand that we get the result that we want right now. Um, you know, the, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, it bends towards justice. We have to be committed to long process, processes and, and I, I'm on the same page as you are about, about that issue, but it's hard. I mean, it's, it's hard to go through a, a long series of you know, losses and not feel like you, know, um, you deserve some back. We just have to, have to be committed to the process. Sure. Yeah. To rise up. It's also uh, fitting that you should use an MLK quote on uh, the eve of Martin Luther King Day when we're uh, <laughs> recording this. So this episode won't go live for another week, but um, it's fitting that you should should quote someone so impactful um, on the eve of his recognition. Um, so another thing I wanted to cover here also is this idea of prison representation which, you know, criminal justice reform is, is kind of its whole own topic worthy of discussion, um, but it affects uh, gerrymandering and redistricting in the sense that um, prison populations are considered for the purposes of the census. Um, and it, it does vary a little bit state by state, but generally speaking, prison populations are considered residents of uh, the the prison in which they reside. And so, you know, if I'm from, uh, you know, Royal Oak, but I end up in um, a county prison that's in another district, I am considered part of that other district, even though if I'm in there with a felony, I don't have voting rights. So I don't get a voice, but I'm still counted for that particular district's, district's representation. And oftentimes these, these prisons are set up in more rural communities where fewer people live, um, where they tend to be more heavily conservative voters oftentimes. And so you get this batch, if you will, and I, I hate to put it like that because they're humans, they're not numbers. But for the purposes of, of this uh, gerrymandering situation, they are not viewed as humans. They're viewed as population so that they can say, okay, we're going to draw the district lines and include these people as part of this population, but we know that they're not going to be able to vote, so we don't have to worry about um, them adding any competition for one of our candidates. And so you kind of get that packing effect that you were talking about, um, but it's sort of in that reverse sense of like, we know they're not a threat, 
So we're gonna pack them into this district with our voters um, so that we can put more of our voters elsewhere. Um, yeah, it was, seems incredibly unjust to me, unfair to me. I mean, it harkens back to the three-fifths compromise. Um, I, you know, if, if you're asking, if you're asking me directly, my view is that prisoners should be permitted to vote. Period. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, um, that's my that's my view on the subject, and and I do, you know, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, <clears throat> we we saw this play out in Florida recently, right? And, and especially in these states where you see that very small infractions such as the failure to pay fines and costs relative to um, what may have been a, a you know a, a nonviolent or what we consider not a major infraction prevents someone from exercising a constitutional right to vote I think um, you, you know we, we saw some of that drama play out in Florida you know relative to you know, people were raising money to pay those fines, so um, so that set part of the prison population, at least in Florida, could vote. Um, you know, prisoners are have long been a disenfranchised population. It's no no surprise there, but um, you know, just another way in which you know gerrymandering can rear its ugly head, so to speak. Yeah, I I just feel like because um, another group that's often um, taken into consideration are the quote unquote low propensity voters, which is just kind of like an industry speak for voters that don't vote often. So they're eligible voters who um, may have been booted off the voting rolls because they haven't used it in X amount of time, depending on the state. They're voters who maybe they, um, they only vote really in presidential elections. And so they can kind of be counted on to not show up for midterm elections and other things. Um, and, and sometimes those voters can also be used when they're building that kind of, um, you know, it's, it's not like we all walk around with a big D or a big R or whatever on our head and they, right. so they can say there's this many Democrats and this many Republicans. They kind of have this guesswork, but they also can see who those low propensity voters are and factor them in, in for population terms without the expectation that they're going to vote. And it's just the, the whole process. I mean, I understand it as a system of like, if I'm in power, why wouldn't I want to retain my power in the easiest possible way? I understand like that, that simplest level, most fundamental level. But when you look at what this has become, it's just, um, it's horrifying to me, truly, um, the, the way that people are, are treated. Um, so we already talked about how this reinforces power. Um, also, you touched on this a little bit earlier about the idea of uh, having lower voter turnout. Um, and I think that that happens kind of both in the districts that are um, strongly for, um, like for my candidate and also the districts that are strongly against my candidate. Right, so if I live in um, a district that's solid Democrat, um, it's easier for me to say, well, I don't really need to go vote because I know my candidate's gonna win, right? Because this district has been built such that I know my candidate's gonna win. On the flip side, if I'm living in another district that is solidly Republican, it can also feel like, what's the point in me going out and voting because I know the Republicans gonna win anyway. And so it can really cause severe voter suppression um, having these districts broken up like that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, th I don't think we want a system where um, the entire outcome is a foregone conclusion, right? Our democracy hinges upon having an educated pop populace who is who are willing to engage in civil discourse and have a healthy exchange of ideas. and and, and you know, the system we're describing depresses that kind of activity, right? I mean, we want competitive races, right? We want um, our government to be responsive to the changing needs of the people. Um, and when you have a system that seems rigged from the beginning and for, you know, for, and certainly in some districts, right, depending on the nature of the drawing of the map, you know, I don't think it's too far to say that they are, you know, a foregone conclusion. I, and I think you're right. Um, you know, low low turnout's not a not a good thing for. Well, I mean, maybe not strategically, right? But at least in theory, 
right? It's not a good thing for either part. We want an engaged, uh, you know, uh, electorate. We want a healthy exchange of ideas that, that you know, that, that's the only way we can test, you know, whose ideas are better, right? And, and we've, you know, just in general, we've gotten away from, you know, uh, inclination or desire to want to test, test our ideas against others and, and, and sort of get to the a result or the right result or at least a result that everybody can live with or compromise on. And I think, you know, gerrymandering is just another way that encourages, you know, um, folks to not get involved, folks to not think about um, the nature of our, of our government to, to not, you know, care about the issues of the day. It's just insidious in so many ways. Right. Um, right. It's in, and like you were saying, you know, uh, low turnout, it's not necessarily good for either of the parties. It's really, it's not good for democracy as a whole, um, the more engaged we can have our voters, um, like you said, the more exchange of ideas you get, the better ideas you get, and also the more reflective of what the people actually want, those ideas can become. So when people don't have to answer to anyone, um, you know, in, uh, in Oakland County alone, uh, we had a, there was one state Senate uh, seat that I know was being run for, uh, or I'm sorry, state legislature. That was what we had this time around. Um, and the candidate who decided to run from the Democratic Party was the first Democrat to run in that district in um, at least the previous two elections, if not longer, uh, because it was such a heavily Republican district that basically the party was just kind of like, yeah, well, you know, we're not going to support that. People didn't bother to run um, because they didn't feel like they could win. And then the party also wasn't devoting money into recruiting candidates for that district. Um, and so unfortunately, all of the people who are proud Democrats or progressives who live in that, um, in that district, even if they wanted to go out and vote for someone that reflected their values, they didn't even have a candidate that reflected their values because of this gerrymandering. So it's, you know, we talk about voter, voter turnout and, and, and the effect that that has, but also candidate options. Like we've got to have, I, if, if I had my way, every single district would be competitive. For some reason, we have this, this uh, impression in the U.S. that competition is good in the economy, but when it comes to elections, the people in power don't really want that competition. They want to just cruise to re-election um, until they decide to retire. <laughs> and it's just, it's unfortunate. Frustrating. Um, so you mentioned that there were a couple Supreme Court cases um, that have recently come down that do have some effect on gerrymandering. Um, do you want to kind of tell us a little bit about some of those and the implications? Oh God, I would love to. You're speaking directly to the, the old law student in me. It can wax poetic about uh, Supreme Court doctrines and, and specific cases. I may even cite a two, one or two during the podcast. Please do. Hopefully, it doesn't. Everyone doesn't. Everyone doesn't turn off the podcast as soon as I start, <laughs> start mentioning it. You know, the last couple of years have been um, pretty consequential for the Supreme Court's review of gerrymandering cases. Um, obviously, the courts are there to resolve disputes between, um, you know, legislatures, between individual citizens. And so we've seen really since the early 60s, folks bringing um, typically federal lawsuits challenging the constitutionality of, um, of, of, of districting schemes, of maps. Um, and we've had, had a, a few, if you if you don't like gerrymandering, really some disheartening cases come through in the last couple of terms. Uh, I'll start with the most recent one, which is really the most devastating, which is, uh, I think it's pronounced Rucho or Rucho versus Common Cause. Um, it's a case um, out of uh, um, two, two states, Maryland and uh, North Carolina. We were talking a bit about how how, how both parties engage in um, in gerrymandering, right? Not not all that surprising when someone's in power. At Maryland, uh, those maps heavily favored Democrats. North Carolina Republicans. They consolidated the case, and we're addressing um, this question of justiciability, right? And so, um, the Supreme Court has an, announced a, a doctrine that some types of cases or claims just aren't fit for 
um, the Supreme Court to decide, right? Either because there's not really a, a great way for, it's not a, really an articulable test by which the court can decide the case, or because <clears throat> sometimes it's because the nature of the issue is so hot button that, or so political for lack of a better term, that the Supreme Court has decided that the best place for this issue to be resolved is in, um, in the legislature. So it's a really a federalist argument. Um, <laughs> having I just want that anyone could view the Supreme Court as having a political, uh, political <laughs> leaning. Well, in theory, <laughs> it's, not, it's not supposed to, but we right, know. right, absolutely. Um, uh, it is a good thing that the courts seem to be one of the last pillars of government that are functioning right now. Uh, but that's an aside. So I just want to read, just because it's really interesting to me, it sort of highlights how sort of ridiculous people in power can be when it comes to drawing the map. And I want to read a, a quick quote from the Republican who was deposed in the lower court proceedings in this case and was asked sort of, you know, hey, you're drawing this map. Uh, this this is the one out of North Carolina, I believe, um, and asked, you know, why did you draw draw the map that you did in, in North Carolina? His response was, I think electing Republicans is better than electing Democrats. So I drew this map to help foster what I think is better for the country. I mean, he literally said that in his <laughs> deposition, right? There's not a question there about whether or not, um, you know, whether they were trying to draw a fair map or a map that, you know, could result in either side winning a hotly contested election. Um, you know, so also sort of funny note in that, in the uh, Rucho case, he, he later ex explained that the map was drawn with the aim of electing 10 Republicans and three Democrats, Democrats, because he did not believe it would be possible to draw a map with 11 Republicans and two Democrats. <laughs> I feel like I recall reading that. Yeah. That like, this was basically saying this was as gerrymandered as I could possibly make it. Exactly. And, and so, you know, you start off a Supreme Court opinion like that, you think, you know, it's going to lead to, of course, the court's going to strike it down. But what, what the Rucho court really said was, you know, we don't have a manageable test for deciding whether uh, partisan gerrymandering is too much or not. I mean, they sort of recognize that some of it is inherent, right? I and mean, we talked a little bit about the beginning of the podcast, but um, the, Justice Roberts writing for the majority essentially decided, look, there's no test here. And I think, you know, he thought that this is a non-justiciable question, meaning that the Supreme Court is not going to take up cases uh, seemingly where the where the issue is partisan gerrymandering. Now, that has some huge implications for um, for gerrymandering, right? We already know that, you know, the party in power has the legal ability to draw the lines. If the Supreme Court is saying, you know, you have a free pass here, right? I think that's incentive for, you know, the folks in power to continue doing things the way they have been doing, right? To continue to draw the lines in more extreme ways. Um, because it's basically sending it back to the state and saying, you have to figure this out and change it if you so desire. But the people that are in charge of changing it are the people whose districts are affected by the very thing they're supposed to change. That's right. Um, and not every state, <laughs> like here in Michigan, we have the uh, ability to do ballot initiatives. We talked about this a little with my last episode talking about ranked choice voting. So we have the ability to petition uh, the legislature uh, and then put items on the ballot and vote by the people to affect these, affect and enact these changes. Whereas not every state has that. And so they might be beholden to that state legislature as kind of the final arbiter of that power. And and it, it you're right, it creates a big hurdle in terms of where to go from there. And I don't know, do you know, just while we're on this, I know we can talk a little more about it and talk about some other cases, but do you know, could there be any action at the federal level looking at like the House of Representatives or the Senate um, where, that could allow like anti-gerrymandering legislation specifically that would say that elections, although conducted by the states, have to be nonpartisan, or would that be thrown out because states' rights? What a great segue into my next point, which is, and you mentioned one reason to be optimistic, which is many states recently are adopting uh, ballot initiatives, either through a constitutional process or a direct voter initiative, to take the redistricting power out of the hands of the um, the leg state legislatures and into, you know, uh, nonpartisan committees. But another sort of, I don't, I don't know if this is really, you know, 
I'm not too optimistic, but you know, you look at Article One, Section Four of the U.S. Constitution. It, you know, we, as we've been talking about, get, it grants the power to state legislatures to determine the manner of elections, including districting. But um, it also states that Congress can enact legislation to to sort of abrogate the state's role. So, so exactly what you said is is perfectly lawful under our Constitution, which is the federal government, the con Congress, could enact national legislation concerning redistrict redistricting right um would be totally within the bounds of the constitution i'm sure there would be a ton of litigation after that or you know maybe be a hot button topic and and maybe there are reasons to think that right now congress you know couldn't do that but they're certainly you know they would be well within their rights to do so and i think that's one of the ways we can take a big bite out of out of gerrymandering if we can tackle it on a national level i'm not sure that's so much of a priority especially with um, when Democrats control <laughs> uh, both houses, uh, uh, technically speaking. Um, so it may not be, I'm sure there'll be pushback within the party again, against that, especially when, when Democrats are the ones that wield the, wield the power. Um, although I'm not quite sure what the makeup of state legislatures is at the moment. since those Yeah, are so there, there was a lot of effort to try to flip a lot more of the state legislatures than were able to be flipped. And so Republicans are going to have the vast majority um, in, uh, of, they'll have uh, a majority in most cases statewide um, or countrywide in, in most states to continue to gerrymander the districts within their states. Um, my assumption would be uh, that also, even though Democrats have a very narrow majority in the Senate, um, that any kind of election law changes would also require um, a 60 vote margin rather than just a 51 vote margin because of the filibuster that would be something that that would create that additional hurdle um, that likely would not be supported in a bipartisan fashion but I yeah. just wanted to ask that just out of curiosity if that was um, a perceived mechanism that this could be changed without relying on individual states to do everything it's certainly it's certainly possible, uh, according to the Constitution, Article One, Section Four. My the the rarely discussed election clause. <laughs> um, awesome. So, you so, mentioned that there were some other cases. Yeah, uh, another talking about another big one, which is a, a blow to people who uh, who want to see um, gerrymandering go by the wayside, is uh, Gill versus Whitford. So this was from 2018, so a year before. Um, the Rucho case came out, uh, talked about another major hurdle to legal claims involving gerrymandering, especially along partisan lines. There are, there are prior cases that make, make clear, you know, Miller, Miller v. Johnson from 1995, for example, that talk about gerrymandering along racial lines is clearly un unconstitutional, right? But what we're, what we're talking about are, are uh, redistricting plans that are, are partisan in nature, where the plan is clearly to, to, to pack or crack to, to get a, a partisan advantage. Um, and, and Gill versus Whitford really talks about the other major issue that plaintiffs face, which is standing issue. So, so typically what you have is, um, you know, for example, in a packed um, district, right, you have a voter from that district saying, hey, you know, uh, usually claims brought under the First and Fourteenth Amendment, right? Their freedom of association and the Equal Protection Clause. Um, but it is difficult for those folks to articulate what the actual injury is, right? They're usually one of several tens or hundreds of thousands of voters in that district. The, the, essentially, the claim is my vote was diluted, or you know, I, they're talking about the one person, one vote doctrine. It's it's not easy to articulate the injury, um, and even if you have multiple plaintiffs, or you have a number of different voters, or sometimes it's a commission or some kind serving uh, as the plaintiff, it, it's not easy to to describe exactly what the injury is, and and. In, a stand, in issues involving standing, right, the plaintiff's responsible for establishing a, a controversy, right, or a case in controversy. And, and what um, Gill versus Whitford held is, you know, at least for that um, particular case, this was out of Wisconsin, um, again, another state held where the state legislature has been dominated by Republicans for some time now. Sure. Um, you know, the, the Supreme Court ended up saying, we, you're not articulating an injury enough that, we'll, that we're going to give you standing to bring this case they remanded it back down and it sort of highlights the other 
problem with these types of, of cases is if you're a single voter or a collection of a small number of voters, it's hard, it's hard to articulate this, this specific injury. And, uh, you know, one unfortunate remedy is some courts have said, you know, okay, even if we decide that your district is sort of unconstitutionally gerrymandered, we're not going to undo the entire scheme. We're going to do that, undo that one district, which is clearly not the aim of, of that legislation. So, right. so, so, I mean, you know, the, the two, those are the two recent cases and you can see, I think there, there are significant hurdles for legal claims and at least for the time being, you know, the solution to gerrymandering is probably going to be in the legislative branch of government um, rather than the judiciary. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen examples of this um, trying to play out in areas where um, although the districts are gerrymandered at the start, you know, right after the, the census, there's population shifts and growth of populations and uh, migration and things like that. And so um, it, it does change. The winds can change within a district. Um, like the one I talked about earlier with Mike Bishop's district being picked up by a Democratic candidate. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, we've seen in Virginia, for example, there was a, a huge push to get a majority in Virginia through turning out a lot of those low propensity voters, the voters who felt that their votes didn't matter and doing outreach and getting their voices heard so that they were able to kind of blow past what the typical expectations for the vote were in that district mm -hmm. and ultimately win those seats, win their way to or towards at the very least a majority um, so that then they would have the power to do the districting next time, which gets full circle back to what we were talking about with then do you gerrymander or do you build fair districts? Um, well, luckily in I, Michigan, that question was answered by ballot initiative. <laughs> right. So, I feel fortunate with that here. Um, and there are, yeah, about 21 states that have uh, some form of either bipartisan or nonpartisan redistricting. Um, and I looked at the, into that a little bit deeper and bipartisan is um, largely where the commissions that are, are built to do that are still largely party affiliated people. Um, so you might have, you know, like five Democrats, five Republicans and three independents or something like that. So it's bipartisan, but it's still majority made up of partisan individuals and then nonpartisan commissions. Um, can vary a little bit in how that's defined, but typically means that there's less emphasis on um, the majority of the people being affiliated with one of the two major parties. Yeah, I was looking at, at Michigan's new scheme um, before the podcast today, and it's the citation for all the nerds out there is uh, Michigan Constitution Article 4, Section 6, uh, outlines the new scheme. So, um, I, you know, I didn't know much about it before I looked into it um, for this uh, so it's a 13 member panel, right? And uh, there's, there's four representatives from, with a party affiliation, so Republican or Democrat, and then five who are nonpartisan. Um, so that's interesting to me. Uh, the application, the, the, the question I always have with these schemes is, well, who decides who those folks are, right? Because there's always some right. shenanigans that could take place. But Michigan, our, our scheme, the scheme in our state is that they, they accept, um, applications through the Secretary of State and, and this year from what I can what I saw you know they processed nearly 10,000 applications uh, which is crazy for a 13 panel <laughs> uh, um, commission uh, and it, it, those the people are chosen by random draw there is a there is a, a sort of like a preemptory procedure so the parties can strike a number of can potential candidates I don't know if it's someone they know is being from a posting party or something, but uh, before the, the draw is completed, I think they do, the parties do get the chance to strike a certain number of folks. Um, but, you know, they, so they built in, you know, um, some interesting safeguards. The other one is before, before the Michigan's final map can be determined um, of the commission um, and, you know, the four and four split, two uh, commissioners from each party must accept the map. So you can't have it really have a situation where, you know, you have all of or a large number of the nonpartisan folks and maybe folks from one party accept. So, you know, it, it's, in, it's interesting to me, the safeguards that have built in. And, and, and just to mention, there is some actually some litigation surrounding Michigan's ballot initiative. Uh, there's a lawsuit called Don, 
Daunt versus Benson, Benson obviously being our current Secretary of State, who was at one sure. time my my law professor. Um, oh, pretty cool. She's she's a great professor, great human. Uh, but um, that there was a challenge to I think the admission procedures of uh, and who who got it, uh, who was able to be a to apply as an applicant. Um, and and uh, that case failed on the on the district court level. And I think, and I was reading the brief uh, that was just filed last week, uh, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals is waiting to hear hear that appeal. So it'd be interesting to see how that um, plays out. I don't I don't think it's uh, from what I've what I've seen. I don't think it's a strong claim or likely to succeed. But interesting to note that um, as with every sort of scheme in <laughs> redistricting, there's always a ton of litigation surrounding the the ultimate plan. Um, from, from folks who who want to who are the victors and maybe want to want to draw the map to their own devices. Yeah, for sure. And I I plan to do a little bit deeper dive specifically into that commission and some of those safeguards you're referencing and stuff like that um, in in an episode all to itself. Um, and who knows, maybe I'll have more news about uh, where the litigation is at currently at that time. Yeah. Um, but I yeah, I'm familiar with some of the legal challenges that have been brought and dismissed and um, of course are still ongoing in some, some forms. Um, so we've covered a lot uh, today. Is there any, anything else that you wanted to uh, mention that you think people should know? Any other potential solutions that you see? Um, yeah, I'm I'm really sort of in, encouraged by the amount of states that are looking at um, these initiatives for nonpartisan or, bi, or bipartisan commissions. I mean, I, um, you know, we mentioned some of the defeats in the, in the in the Supreme Court, though. You know, there are there are some reasons to be optimistic about about that. I think you know I haven't looked at the polling data. I think you know I don't think gerrymandering polls well in general. <laughs> Um, it's just that, you know, the, the way that our system is set up, right, it's the victor takes the spoils. And if you have, uh, if you, if you have someone in power with the ability to, to sort of draw the contest to their favor, that's a problem for democracy. Uh, and I think most people recognize that they want uh, a fair system, they want to choose their politicians and not have their politicians choose them. Um, so I'm just, I just want to end by saying I'm really encouraged by the number of these ballot initiatives out there. And I think uh, it's, a, it's a win for democracy. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that the more people are talking about it, you know, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do an episode on this topic. I think the more people understand this and talk to their elected officials about it. And, you know, like even me talking to a county commissioner, like, well, like, what are you going to do? Are you, if you keep power, are you going to, um, you know, gerrymander after that and, and kind of challenging people on that, even if it's your own party. Um, I think that's how, how things sometimes have to get done. Um, but thank you for being here so much. I appreciate your, um, your knowledge, especially diving in a little on those Supreme court cases. Um, and I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. All right, it's great to be with you, thanks. Yeah, thank you, have a good rest of your evening. You too. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I hope that you got some good information out of this episode. Um, again, if you uh, are able to take a picture or a screenshot of your congressional district, um, just look it up and email it to mittenpolitics at gmail.com. I'd really love to highlight some of those districts. And again, I'll keep any, anyone's names out of it. So they'll all just be just the photos. But um, I'd like to kind of showcase some of the districts for the people that listen to this. Um, if you have not done so, please go to Instagram and follow my Instagram page at mitten underscore politics. On Facebook, I have a page that's at mitten politics. That one does not have an underscore. And if you have any questions or topics that you'd like me to cover, uh, you can email me at mittenpolitics at gmail.com. And I will uh, make sure to answer any questions that come through and may even highlight one or two on the episode. Uh, our next episode will be in two weeks. And the topic will be student loans or student debt and kind of the crisis surrounding that. So you can look forward to that episode coming up in a couple of weeks. 
thank you so much for listening again and have a really great week, great couple weeks and onward we march.